We've just seen where God has instituted worship for the children of Israel. He's laid out all of the different sacrifices, those sacrifices fulfilled in Christ. At the end of that section, at the end of chapter 9, God answers by causing the offering to be consumed with fire, allowing for his glory to be in the tabernacle. Things drastically change in chapter 10, as Aaron's sons offer a profane fire, a strange fire unto the Lord, disobeying the Lord, and God strikes them down dead. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. God was very specific that the fire was to come from the altar. The altar was to be burning all the time, 24-7. And for some reason, Aaron's sons get this idea, we're going to do it a different way. We're not going to do it the way that God has commanded. We're going to put fire into our own container, and we're going to put incense on it and take that into the tabernacle, take it into this place of worship. And I wonder what was it inside of Nadab and Abihu that caused them to want to disobey the Lord. It caused them to think, you know, we don't really have to listen to what God is is saying. Was this more convenient for them? Was having their fire easier for them? And well, God must not be too serious about what he said. Was it just simply downright rebellion? Where it's like, okay, I know that God said this, but there's sure a lot of details here with this whole tabernacle worship and these offerings. God can't be serious about about all this. We don't know the, the motivation of their heart, but we do see their disobedience. We do see them stepping out to get this profane fire and to disobey the Lord. So the fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. They literally were burned out. (laughs) They get burned out by the Lord. The Lord consumes them for their disobedience. And we see the reason why in verse 3. And Moses said to Aaron, remember Aaron's the dad, Aaron's the father. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, being the priests, they have the special privilege of coming near to the Lord, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. So we do see what has gone wrong in the hearts of Aaron's sons. Is they did not regard God as holy. They didn't set God apart in his proper place in awe and reverence. And because that wasn't in the right place, in the right location, then it was easy for them to walk into disobedience. God says, I've got to be set apart by those who draw near to me. God has to be glorified before his people. In the Old Testament, the Lord is showing his holiness. And if he allows the priest to disobey in this way, his glory is not seen amongst the the children of Israel. It's sections like this that cause us to be even more thankful for what Jesus has done on the cross for us. God's standard of holiness is high, and if it wasn't for Jesus, we, we couldn't stand before the Lord. In serving the Lord, remember, we're priests that God has called to serve him. 
there is this temptation to get a fire from a different location. The place that we should be getting our strength and getting our motivation in serving the Lord comes in our relationship with God, true? It comes by drawing near to him. It comes from responding to his love. The love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ moves us. But sometimes there's this temptation in our hearts that we're going to do things in our own strength, also for our own glory. The motivation's not coming from the presence of God. It's not coming from the altar. It's not coming from the proper place, but it's coming from our own motivation, our own fire, putting our own incense on it. And it's very subtle. But as we move further down that track, and we're all capable of it and have done it at different points in our walk with the Lord, we're more concerned about, hey, did anybody notice? Did anybody notice that that I was serving? Did I get anything back from my service? I did have some expectation in my service that I would receive something back in, in return, and ultimately it does lead us to a place of burnout. It does lead us to a place where we say, man, serving the Lord's not worth it because our eyes are off of the Lord and who he is and having that proper motivation, we didn't get what we expected uh, from, from the Lord. So in verse 4, then Moses called Mishael and Elsaphon, the sons of Uzel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near and carry your brethren before the sanctuary out of the camp. This would put the fear of God into you. If you're having to carry out the dead bodies of the priests who didn't regard the command of the Lord. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of their camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons, so speaking specifically to Aaron and his sons, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. God speaks specifically to Aaron and his surviving sons is I don't want you to go into grief. I don't want you to go into mourning. I don't want you to tear your clothes. If they went into this type of mourning, it would show disagreement to God's decision, disagreement to God's judgment. God's not saying for us to not mourn those who have passed away. We do mourn. We have hope inside of our our mourning. But this was a specific situation where God speaks to Aaron and his sons and says, I want you to get behind the decision of judgment that I've made in regards to your sons. Let the children of Israel mourn, but you're not to mourn. Would have been difficult for Aaron and his surviving sons, but that was the command of the Lord. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. Stay in the tabernacle, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. So God says to Aaron and his sons or to serve as priests, when you're going into the tabernacle to draw near to me, 
to worship me, to offer these sacrifices, you're not to be drinking. There shouldn't be anything clouding your judgment, clouding your worship. And the reason for that is you've got to be able to distinguish between what's holy and what's not. What, what's clean and what is unclean. There's some commentaries and Bible teachers that think maybe Aaron's sons were intoxicated when they offered this strange fire. And the reason for that is why would God mention this now? Why would the Lord speak this to, to Aaron at this moment? Why wasn't this given prior to? So it is possible that Aaron's sons were, were drunk and that impacted them as they made this decision to get fire from a different location than from the altar of, of the Lord. But that instruction was given to the priests so that they would understand it was sacred time in the tabernacle. Verse 11, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So as they're serving in the tabernacle and they're teaching, there wasn't to be any alcohol that was impairing them from that calling and from that task. Verse 12, and Moses spoke to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons who were left, take the grain offering that remains of the offering made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire. For so I have been commanded. So they're instructed to eat the, the grain offering at the tabernacle. As priests, they had opportunity to receive from the offerings as well. In verse 14 and 15, we see the wave offering and the heave offering was freedom for them to share with their families. The breasts of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your sons due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the heave offering and the breasts of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you by statute forever as the Lord has commanded. The thigh of the heave offering and the breasts of the wave offering they shall bring with the offering of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord had commanded." Verse 16, then Moses carefully inquire about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I've commanded. You can imagine Moses is like, time for some quality control here. Time to make sure that the priests are following all the commands of God. And he's saying, why wasn't the sin offering eaten in uh, totality? That was the instruction that was given is you guys were to, to eat it and, and you haven't eaten it. Which is interesting because sometimes it's difficult to receive, isn't it? It's difficult to receive what God has provided for us. In John 6, 53, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in me. 
unless we believe and receive what Christ has, has done for us, then we have no, no life in Christ. So Moses is saying, guys, you didn't eat of the sin offering as you were supposed to, but Aaron has a good reason in verse 19. And Aaron said to Moses, look this day, they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. Well, what's befallen him that day? His sons died in a very dramatic way. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? I just lost my sons. I had no appetite today. That's why I didn't eat the, the sin offering. In verse 20, so when Moses heard that, he was contented. So Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who were killed, their sin was one of rebellion. And here, Aaron simply shows his weakness under grief. And God doesn't judge him for that. God doesn't strike him down dead because he's a father that's stricken with grief. And, and Moses is content with his answer as well. This is quite a moment as we're studying the book of Leviticus. Imagine if you are Nadab and Abihu. And you're going about your routine and you decide this particular day you're going to disobey. They were in on it together. They get fire from a different location. They offer it unto the Lord. And the next thing you know, you're on fire. And the next thing you know, you're dead. And Aaron starts off the day with four sons and now he's got two sons and they're carrying out dead bodies and the children of Israel all of a sudden are going, man, God's serious about worship. God's serious about uh, his holiness. When we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn too. That barrier between God's holiness and sinful man, only one man one day a year could enter in and God tears that veil by the blood of Jesus and welcomes us into the presence of God. How could sinful man, how could you and I be in the presence of God for all of eternity because the sacrifice of Christ is that great? We're robed in Christ's righteousness. He's removed our, our sin uh, from us. If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, it's like, look out, who's getting barbecued today? Right? But instead, we're not objects of God's wrath, but we're objects of God's favor. I've been meditating upon the sacrifice of Christ and the, the depths of the sacrifice of Christ. There's the weight of his physical suffering that he went through, but there's also the weight of his spiritual suffering where Jesus cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, it's dark for three days, or three hours, excuse me, three hours, it's, it's completely dark. And Jesus, he becomes the, the punishment for our sin to the point where the fellowship with the Father is broken and Jesus says, I'm forsaken. My God, why have, have you for, forsaken me? That's the, the, the judgment of sin. Jesus and the Father for all of eternity past have enjoyed fellowship together, the Father and the Son. And Jesus becomes a curse for us and, and the Father actually punishes, brings this kind of judgment that we read here that went on Nadab and Abihu, it went on Jesus be, because of, of our sin. 
So when Christ is risen from the dead and extends forgiveness for, for us, he's paid the price for our sins. So yes, there's the physical sufferings of Christ, but there is also what's taking place in the, the spiritual realm. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He took on the sin of the rapist. He took on the sin of the, the murderer. He took on the, the sin of adultery. He took on the, the sin of, of anger. He took on the sin of, of covetousness. All, all of our sin. If we just took the sin of this room in our hearts and those watching online, it would be, be so overwhelming. Just a, a few hundred people and not put on Christ, but, but all of the sin of all of humanity to where God could give the glorious invitation that whosoever believes should not perish but have, have everlasting life. It's amazing that God took the wrath for us, that Jesus took, took the wrath for us. We shift another gear in chapter 11. It goes to dealing with what the children of Israel were to eat and not eat. God wanted them to be completely set apart, even set apart in what they would eat, where the surrounding nations would know that there was something different about them. God's purpose in setting apart the children of Israel was so that they could be a light unto the nations. And food does set us apart, doesn't it? If for some reason, for dietary restrictions or for health choices, you, you've decided to, to not eat a particular food and you're hanging out with family or friends and you're like, sorry, I, I can't eat that. All of a sudden, everybody's looking at you, what's wrong with you? Like, why can't you eat that? Like, you're a fuddy-duddy? You don't, you don't want to eat that? And you're like, well, you know, here's all the reasons, blah, 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 blah. I can't eat that, right? So imagine the Jews hanging out with non-Jews, with Gentiles, and they're like, sorry, don't do pork. Well, well, why don't you do pork? Have you ever tasted pork? It's really good. Like bacon, sausage, come on, so good, right? Well, the reason I don't is because God has commanded me to. So this was the reason that God had set them apart in this way with even their diet and what they ate. Also through this diet, we know that God blessed the children of Israel with their health. During the bubonic plague, Israel really survived it much better, largely to do with this, this kosher diet. So let's look at the first few verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud. So the hoof has to be split and has to chew the cud. Then you may eat, that you may eat. Nevertheless, you shall not eat among those that chew on the cud or those that have cloven hooves, the camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves. Remember Jesus speaking to the Pharisees saying, you guys strain at a gnat. You make sure that you're not eating a gnat, but you've swallowed a camel which is forbidden in the law. These Pharisees would know exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you're a lawbreaker, even though you're so good about straining at a gnat. We're gonna jump down to verse 44. I'd encourage you to, to read through all the specific animals that are clean and unclean, but we're gonna get to the motivation. Why does God give them this, 
diet, this kosher diet. And this is the reason why in verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living thing that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. The motivation for this diet was, I want you to be holy because I am holy. When we think about what's the motivation to live a holy life, it's because God's holy. That's what should move us and compel us to say, I want to live a whole life. I want to live a holy, set-apart life because God himself is holy. So let's dive into some questions tonight. Are we as New Covenant believers required to eat kosher? No, we're not. We know that absolutely clearly from Scripture. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we're not judged by the Old Testament law. We're not judged by this kosher diet. We have freedom. This is a, a shadow to point us to the substance of Christ, so we embrace Christ. We also know when Gentiles were saved in the book of Acts, that they did not put on them the requirement of being circumcised or eating this uh, kosher diet. Peter, a Jewish boy, raised kosher, never broke this kosher diet, was hungry, went up on the mountain, or excuse me, on the roof to pray. And God gave him a vision of all these unclean animals and says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, not so, Lord. I, I can't eat this stuff, right? And it wasn't about food. It was about God calling Peter to go to Cornelius' house, to go to a Gentile's house to share the gospel. Peter wasn't willing to eat this food, and also Peter wasn't willing to even go into a Gentile's house. So if you want to eat this way, man, you can, by, by all means. But you're not required to under the law. There's, there's freedom in Christ. This is something that God gave to the nation of Israel to set them apart. But this did cause me to examine a question and hear it out on this. Is as New Covenant believers, is there a way for us to worship God through food? Because that's the principle here, is for God to be present in the food that they would eat. And is there a way that we can embrace our relationship with God when it comes to food? Now hear me out on this. First, this is very much secondary, all right? What's primary? Your heart. Jesus says it's not what you eat that defiles you. It's, when you, it's in your heart that defiles you. God's much more concerned with the sin in our hearts than our food choices. Amen? Right? So this is completely secondary. But are there things in our culture that cause us to wrestle with food? And is there instruction in God's word, Old and New Testament, 
that would guide us in, in areas of food. Now, now be patient with me on this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pick on all of us for a few moments, okay? Food does reveal a lot about our hearts. So say, for instance, you choose a really healthy diet. Why are you choosing that, that healthy diet? And is there a right motivation for that? And is there a wrong motivation for that? What if my motivation for a healthy diet is I'm really consumed with how I look. I want to look a certain way, and so I'm going to eat this way so that I look this way. Would, would that be a godly attitude towards food? I don't think so. That, that wouldn't be what would motivate us to, to eat healthy, right? Or what if what motivates us to eat healthy is pride? Well, I'm not like these other people because I eat healthy food. That sounds a lot like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were really prideful about the food that they ate, and I didn't even have a gnat. I didn't care that it was an organic gnat. I, I won't even eat a gnat because it's unclean, and they would look down upon the disciples because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. So if it's pride that motivates us in, in healthy eating, that, that would be wrong. So just because there's healthy eating doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a godly motivation. Now, of course, there's also unhealthy eating as well. And Proverbs warns us about gluttony and being careful to not eat too much. And sometimes when we overdo it with food, it may be that there's something else going on in our hearts, that we're lonely, so I'm trying to fill this with food. I'm overwhelmed, so I'm going to fill this with, with food. And it's really deeper things in our hearts that we need to be taking to the Lord, but we're going to food to try to be able to fulfill that. And what's interesting in our culture, because of so much abundance, is we can get to the place in our luxury where we live to eat instead of eat to live, right? Most other cultures, it's like they're just trying to survive and get food, and so they're literally eating to live, but we can live to, to eat. Take a family in Mexico or Uganda. It's like they got beans and rice and beans and rice. And over in Uganda, they got some posho, which I wouldn't recommend, but it's their staple. And maybe once a week, maybe once a month, add some, some meat in that. But that, that's what they have. But for us, we have so many choices. We go to the grocery store and we have so many choices. So that's some of the, the wrong motivation when it comes to food. But what's some of the right motivation with food? First, understand that God designed us to be able to eat food. He designed our bodies to have to eat food. Even before the fall, Adam and Eve ate food. So there's purpose in food. There's an opportunity to worship God through food. And I think the first way to worship God with food is to receive it with gratitude. Would you agree? Man, Lord, thank you so much for this food, whatever it is. I'm thankful to be able to eat. I'm thankful for how you've, you've provided. You know, it really what sets us apart from the animal kingdom. Our dog, Quinn, she's a Newfoundland. She's about a year and a half old. She never pauses and thanks God for her dog food, right? <laughs> she just can't wait to eat. And she knows it's time to eat, and she just dives in, and she's able to eat her bowl of food so fast. And so what should separate us is, Lord, I'm receiving this with gratitude. 
I'm so thankful that you've given me this this food to eat and taking that opportunity to worship. And then a biblical motivation when it comes to food is my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to try to steward the body that God has given to me so that I can try to serve the Lord the best as possible. So whatever food choices that we make is to do it out of worship and saying, Lord, I am going to value the body that you have given to me. And there is a lot of problems with food, you know. Sometimes people are, are starving themselves to death and saying, I'm not going to eat food. I'm going to be bulimic and an- anorexic and, and rejecting God, God's provision. And the result is the body starts to break down and, and be set free. You don't have to reject food. God designed you for food. He created you for food. It's good for you to be able to eat. And you're, and you're healthy when you, you eat the, the right things and glorify the Lord. And you're kind of going, okay, I've never really thought about it this way, but here's some choices that I'm making with food, and I don't feel very good. And when I eat it, I don't have any energy for anything, and especially to be able to serve the Lord. And so, so that becomes the motivation instead of, well, well, well how do I look? You know, do, do I look great? Well, that's really not the motivation. I just simply want to be a good steward of the body that God has provided me. So we can worship God in food with gratitude. We can worship God as being a good steward. Let's go a little bit deeper. Why did God design us for food? Because food brings us together with people. Brings us together with people. How many times would we not be with people if it wasn't for food? How many times have you said, well, I've got to eat, and I eat lunch every day, so we might as well eat lunch together, right? Jesus loved to eat. It's in the Gospels. It's there. He's always eating, And he's always eating with people. You never see Jesus eating by himself. And this really gets to one of the other issues that food brings up in our culture. It's the idol of busyness. Sometimes we're simply too busy to eat food with people. And I don't think that's the way God designed it. He wants us to gather together around a meal. It's very common. I do this a lot where I'm too busy to sit down and eat with people. So I eat my lunch in my office while I'm working, right? I got to get more work done. I'm too, I'm too busy to slow down and, and have a meal with, with someone. A lot of other cultures aren't like that. A lot of other cultures take time to be able to, to eat together. So as we worship God with food, hear me out on this, is try to have food with people, and be thankful for what God has done and press into each other's lives. As Jesus was spending time with the disciples over food, that's when he was able to get into their hearts and pass on truth about who the Father is. How many times have we experienced over a meal as you start to press in and ask questions and they ask you questions that, that before you know it, you're getting into the deep things of the heart and you're talking about who God is. In the book of Acts, that's what we see communion to be today, is they would get together and have food together, worship together, talk about the things of God, and have communion together, remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood. It's one of the reasons in our connect groups we've said they've got to have food. When RMC gets together with connect groups, there's going to be some kind of, of food. You know, and we don't even care if it's a healthy choice or not, right? 
We just, we just want people to get together around food because that's where relationship happens and relationship grows. So this applies no matter what state of life that we're in. So if you have kids, something we have to fight for to eat with them. And it's not always easy, right? We'd like to say, man, all family dinners are just pleasant and peaceful and the Holy Spirit just descends. And that's not real life, right? Real life happens at, at the dinner table. But being able to sit together as families at the dinner table with our kids, to look them in the eyes, then look us in the eyes, say, okay, everybody put their phones away. This isn't going to be phone time. This is just going to be together as a family. How's your day? What were your highs and lows? Goof off a little bit. See where there's opportunity to segue into the, the things of God. That's Deuteronomy 6, where we're commanded as parents to do life with our kids, to rise with them, to sit down with them, to eat with them, to put them to bed, and in those opportunities, have heart moments to share the things of God. Well, you say, well, well I don't have kids, so I can eat alone. No. <laughs> For you empty nesters that are married, novel concept, but have meals with your spouse. Hey, your kids are now grown up and they are no longer in the house. Congratulations. You know, you have lived through it. You can sit down and enjoy a meal uninterrupted. It's going to bless your marriage. It's going to be better than eating in front of the TV, right? It's going to be better than eating in front of the, the phone. How many times have you looked around at a restaurant pre-COVID days and people are out to eat together, but everybody's in on their phones, and nobody's talking to, to each other. So married couples, eat together. If you're empty nesters, man, enjoy it. Have a meal together every day. If you're single and you're saying, man, I would love to, to eat with people, you know, I, I would love to have a family to be able to eat with. I know that it's more difficult, but make the effort to get together with people, with other singles and other couples in the fellowship and say, let's be in relationship together. Let's have a meal together. And I believe that's where God does great work and that's how we worship the Lord through food. By saying, I'm gonna make time to have food with, with someone else. An amazing testimony of a pastor in Southern California where there was articles being written in the newspaper from the perspective of being a proponent of gay marriage. So the pastor decided to, to reach out to this lady that was writing these articles and said, would you be willing to come over and have dinner with my wife and I? And this lady writing these articles from this perspective and living in that lifestyle, she said yes. And they became friends. And she started coming over to their house on a regular basis to have meals with them. But this pastor and his wife didn't stop doing what they always did and have Bible study over dinner. And they would open up the Word and do Bible studies, and she started listening to the Bible studies when she was there. And not overnight, not over a couple months, but over several years, she ended up getting saved. She ended up coming to get to know Christ her Savior, started walking in God's plan, for sexuality, biblical sexuality, got married. She's, she's now married to a pastor, has kids, and you know what they do in their home? 
they invite in their unsaved neighbors and have Bible study. That's how she came to know the Lord. This is a great way to encourage believers, but this is also a great way to reach out to unbelievers and say, hey, let's have a meal together. Just, just come over. Just come over to the house, but don't change what you normally do at the table. Just be who you are and press into their life. Let them press into your life and trust that there's going to be opportunities for the gospel and for Christ to, to be shared. Let's go on to chapter 12 now that we've looked at worshiping God through, through food. Before we do go on to chapter 12, I just want to be clear on this. Don't allow this issue of worshiping God through food to become legalistic, you know? Because that's where they went wrong with the law, right? You know, God's not in a place where he loves you more or less by, by your food choices. We simply get to respond to the gospel, respond to his acceptance, and say, God, I want to worship you in all areas of my life, including the area of food. Amen? All right, chapter 12. Can I get a bacon cheeseburger? No, just chapter 12. <laughs> then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, and in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. So she'd be ceremonially unclean after uh, giving birth and unable to participate in tabernacle worship. And verse 3, and on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. The eighth day speaks of new beginning, seven days in a week, seven the number of completion, eight the, the new beginning, you have a new life that, that was given. Also on the eighth day is the peak of when blood can clot, and so God also creating the body, knowing the body, says the eighth day was for circumcision, Circumcision was to set apart, once again, the children of Israel unto God, their covenant unto the Lord. Just like with food, circumcision was to represent that they were completely consecrated unto the Lord. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. So why is she unclean twice as long if she had a girl than a boy? Most likely it's because the, the sin of the boy is dealt with through circumcision, but that's not the case for the female, for the, the baby girl, and so the mom was unclean longer. But this raises a deeper question. Birth is obviously according to the heart of God. God says, be fruitful and multiply. So why in the world would the mom be unclean after giving birth? Because it's the understanding that the, though the child is an absolute blessing born in God's image, the child's also a sinner. And this goes against our culture. We culturally, outside of Scripture and outside of the things of God, think that people are inherently good, that a child is born inherently good. But in Psalms 51.10, David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Now, it wasn't that David's 
mom was doing something sinful or was in adultery, but it's that as soon as conception took place, the sin nature was alive and well in David. Every one of us was born with a sin nature, showing us our need for a savior. And that's why the mom was, was unclean because it's the understanding that this child is an amazing gift from God, but this child is, is a sinner. And this impacts the way that we see our children. It impacts the way we see ourselves. It impacts the way that we see the world. We understand, man, this child is an amazing gift from God, created in God's image that I'm so thankful for that also needs a savior. It also needs Jesus to die for them because they're a sinner. It's how we see ourselves. We see that we're depraved and flawed and, and we need a savior. It's how we see the world. We, we come to understand that the world needs a savior, that everyone who is born needs a savior, needs Christ to, to die for their sins. In verse six, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priests a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has been born a male or a female. And if she's not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2 quickly. Luke chapter 2. Because we see Jesus being brought to the temple on the eighth day in fulfillment of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. We see Mary and Joseph bringing two turtle doves for Mary's purification. And then notice what happens as they're in the temple. So this is Luke 2, verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. And the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Christ circumcised on the eighth day. Now in the days of her purification, according to the law, which we just read, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two pigeons. Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a lamb. So they bring turtle doves or pigeons. Yet, they've been entrusted with the lamb of God who's gonna take away the sins of the world. They're holding the ultimate lamb, but they can't afford a lamb. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Holy Spirit seeks to Simeon saying, hey, you're not gonna pass away till you see the Messiah till you behold the Messiah. So he came by the Spirit in the temple. That day, he's led to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child of Jesus 
to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Now remember, the whole reason of purification is showing that every child is born a sinner. Here's Mary on her day of purification, has the the Christ child with her, and this prophecy over Jesus that Jesus is the answer for our sins. So he takes up Jesus in his arms and he begins to bless God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now I can die in peace. For which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory of your people Israel. So this lamb is for the Jew and the Gentile. For all nations to have an answer for their sin, to have a sacrifice for their sin. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken over him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Wow. Holy Spirit speaking through Simeon. The rise and fall of many through Jesus. Some will accept him and will rise, but others will reject him and fall. Speaking specifically to Mary, your heart is going to be broken. Mary would watch Jesus, this child, grow, be crucified upon the cross. She's there watching her son be crucified, and her heart is broken, so the hearts of many would be revealed. The crucifixion of Christ reveals the hearts of many. It goes on, Anna. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Wow. Who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in an instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So Anna also realizes this infant, this this child, is the Messiah. All of this happening when? At the purification of Mary from giving birth. Jesus fulfills Luke 12. Jesus is the lamb that cleanses us from our sin, that cleanses us from our sin nature that's the answer for our sin. So how do we apply this passage? Is there strange fire in our lives? Are we going to a counterfeit altar, our own altar, instead of God's altar to receive motivation? We're free from the law. We don't have the kosher diet. We don't have some heavy trip placed on us with food. But can we worship God with food? Should we worship God with food? Absolutely. Let's do it with gratitude. Let's do it with good stewardship. Let's do it by being in relationship with with others. And then Jesus is the answer to our sins. The Christ child who's revealed that Mary's purification is the answer for our sins. Let's stand together and pray and we'll move into communion. Jesus, we do thank you that you are 
the answer for our sin, that you paid the price, you took the wrath of the Father. And as we come and celebrate communion tonight, we truly are thankful. If it wasn't for your death, your resurrection, there's nothing that could stand between us and a holy God, but instead we're welcomed into God's presence, into your presence, our, our Father. And we do want to worship you with every area of our life. We don't want to be going to the altars of the world. We even want to worship you in the area of food, and we do thank you for food. What a wonderful thing that you've created. We look forward to enjoying food with you in eternity. We pray you would bless our relationships through food, that we would take time to slow down and to to eat with one another. And Jesus, thank you for being the lamb, this Christ child in Mary's arms going up to the temple that would fulfill all things. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.